Now go ahead and take out your Bible. Let's hold them up nice and high. Let's make this declaration of our faith. Say it with me. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to Hebrews chapter number 12, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. The scripture says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight And the sin which so easily ensnares us, the NIV says, hinders us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Today... In this new year, we begin a brand new series entitled Unhindered. And I want to minister to you from the subject, ready, drum roll, for the new year. Drop the weight. Come on, that's clever right there. I mean, I don't care what y'all say. That's pretty clever right there. And, and I know a lot of you, that's your New Year's resolution, right? You, you're going to go back to the gym and you're going to take out your gym membership and 30 days from now, you're just going to be paying and not using it, right? And a lot of you are going to drop all the carbs from your diet and get on your ketogenic diet and throw out all the sweets and 30 days from now, you're going to be eating them sweets all over again. A lot of you are going to dust off, you know, the treadmill in your house. You're going to take them pictures of how many calories you burned put it up on the internet to show everybody you just burned a thousand calories and one month from now it's going to be collecting dust again and so I know everybody wants to drop the weight for the new years but I believe that there's a greater weight that each and every single one of us needs to drop in our lives and that's what I want to talk to you about in this message drop the weight let's pray father in the mighty name of Jesus Would you minister by your grace, by your power, by your Holy Spirit to every single heart? Would you help us to be transformed, to become more like you, and to serve you with greater passion than we have ever had? In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. As I was contemplating what God would have me to share with you, as we once again turn the page of life and move from 2023 to 2024, I kept hearing a quote in my spirit by D.L. Moody. He was a famous preacher, revivalist back in the day. And he said this, he said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man or a woman fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. And then I heard God speak again in my spirit. And this time he said to me, he said, I want you to live an unhindered life for me. In other words, God was saying to me that you are yet to see what I can do in your life and through your life if you stop hindering me. God was saying it's time to get out of my way so that you can experience not some but all of what I have for you. And now if you know me, uh, 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 if you're like me, then you know this, that, that I hate to lose. 
I'm not very fond of it. I, I don't enjoy it at all in, in any capacity whatsoever. Matter of fact, I don't even like to lose at family board games. And so I've been known to slant the outcome in my favor just a little bit to make sure that I, I even win at family board games. I, I don't like it when my sports teams lose. And so if you've been around me, you know that if on the rare occasion that the Cowboys lose, not like it's going to happen today in the playoffs or nothing like that, but on the rare occasions that the Cowboys lose, I hate losing so much that I will even be able to explain to you exactly why the Cowboys lost. It wasn't because the team was better than them. It was because they made this mistake and that mistake and the other mistake. And so the fact of the matter is I, I just, I'm just not very fond of losing. And I've come to, come to understand that there are different kinds of losing. There's the one kind of losing where you are outmanned and you are outgunned and you are outworked and all that kind of stuff and and you try your best and you put up a good fight but you realize that, you know what, the enemy that you were up against, the opponent that you were up against, it's just better than you. And so even though you were able to, you know, to resist a little bit and you gave your best effort and you gave your best shot, you lost and and, and it's still not cool to lose, it's still it's still not fun to lose but, but you can kind of accept a loss like that. But then I also found out that there are other losses, and I hate these the worst. You're not outmanned. You're not outgunned. You're not outnumbered. In fact, you are bigger, stronger, tougher, faster, smarter, all of those things. But you keep making self-imposed mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. And you lose not because the enemy was better. Not because the opponent was tougher, but you lost because you could not get out of your own way. And it's that type of losing that I hate more than anything else. I really despise that. And God, just like he spoke to David in Psalm 23 through the metaphor of a shepherd, God spoke to me based upon my personality because God knows me better than I know myself. And what God said to me is he said, I'm calling you to fully surrender. Surrender to me so there is nothing in the way hindering me from doing what I want to do in your life. In other words, it's you that is stopping me from doing everything that I want to do in, in you. It's not your brother. It's not your mother. It's not your father. It's not your sister. It's not the enemy. It's not the devil. It's me. It's me. It's me, oh Lord, that's standing in the need of prayer. See, oftentimes what I found out in our spiritual journey is it's not all of these other things that we like to blame on the fact that God is not showing up like he needs to, but in fact, we are standing in the way of him, and that there are things in our life, in all of our lives, that are hindering God from doing what God wants to do, and so my New Year's resolution for 2024, and I hope that you'll make it yours as well, is to drop the weight Sure, I want to lose some LBs and I want to look better and I want my clothes to fit better and I, and I want to get to the point again where, you know, that I, that I could see my abs again in my life. I'll take my feet, actually. I'll take just being able to see my feet again. Sure, I want to lose some weight and all that kind of stuff, but the weight that I'm talking about is not the weight that is physical weight, but the weight that is spiritual weight, the weight that is holding us back in our relationship with God. And God, I believe, is calling us in 2024 to drive 
drop all of that stuff, to drop the doubt and drop the fear and drop the regret and drop the shame and drop the pride and drop the anger and drop the resentment and drop the greed and drop the lust and drop the bitterness and drop the hate and drop the pain and the depression and all of those things and exchange them for a better and stronger weight of glory to where God can do everything, not some of what he wants to, but everything that he wants to in each one of our lives. And I promise you that if you drop that weight, you'll look better, you'll feel better, you'll pray better, you'll have more power in your life, you'll feel closer to God in your life, there'll be an anointing on your life, your marriage will be better, your job will be better, everything will be better, because my Bible tells me that godliness is profitable to all things. Having the promise that is now in this life and the promise in the life to come. And so I want us to back up and I want you to notice what our opening text begins with. Hebrews chapter 12 verse number 1. It says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now to understand what this is talking about, you have to have read chapter 11 and and all of us know, or most of us know, that in chapter number 11, God talks to us or recounts the journeys of all the Bible greats as they walked on this earth. And he specifically mentions what they accomplished for him by faith. He mentions Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and and Joshua and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all of the prophets and he calls them this great cloud of witnesses. And we need to understand what he means by this great cloud of witnesses. The word cloud literally describes an arena that is packed to the rafters. A sports arena where people are watching a race that is taking place on the field. And notice what he calls them. He says a great cloud of witnesses. Not just those who are watching, but those who actually saw God do certain things in their life as they ran their race. That's what it means. A great cloud of witnesses. And so the big picture that is being painted is heaven is cheering us on as we run our race of life that God God has destined for us to live a life of destiny and purpose where we play a part in his story and live out our lives for his glory an abundant life a life filled with joy and peace and power and the blessing and the goodness of God that we can uh, have on our life to accomplish great things for the kingdom and when you put this all together here's what it's saying it's saying imagine yourself in the middle of an arena called life And God has given you a specific, very specific, each one of you, race to run. And those who have already run their race and finished their course are cheering us on. And specifically, they are cheering us on with wisdom that they have left behind from what they witnessed God do in and through their lives and left that wisdom for us to glean from in the pages of the scripture. Their stories are not just there to take up space and so we can love them and have stuff to teach in church and Sunday school. Their stories are there so that you and I can be more effective than they were in the race that we are running. They are in fact meant to mentor us so that we can do everything that God has called us to do. Because in life, there are two ways to learn. You've heard me say this before, mistakes and mentors. 
And mentors are better because they've already made the mistakes and experienced the self-inflicted wounds and made it through the pain. And now they can tell us, don't do this and do this. This is how you run well. This is how you run fast. This is how you run effective. And this is what not to do in your life. And so imagine yourself in this arena and out steps one of the giants of the faith, onto the field with you. He comes down from the nose, bleeds, and he's got an odd attire on. He has both a crown and a shepherd's staff. He holds both a sword as a mighty warrior and a slingshot that seems like a child's toy. And of course, his name is David. And David's lesson for us as we run our race so that we'll run unhindered is drop the weight of sin. It's amazing to me how we can go years in American church and never hear about the weight of sin in our lives. David says, we need to drop that. We need to lay it aside. And with a grateful heart and a tear of appreciation rolling down his face, as he contemplates and looks back on the mercy of God, David begins to share his story. He tells us he was one of eight children to Jesse, his father. When the prophet Samuel showed up at his house to anoint Israel's next king, Samuel, as you know the story, looks over seven of Jesse's sons. And Samuel, as custom would have it, thinks that it is Eliab, the oldest, the tallest, the best looking, the one whose natural appearance looks like a king, that is the one for him to anoint. And so he takes the oil, uh, the, the, the horn of oil, and he begins to attempt to anoint Eliab. But the oil would not flow. But there's six other boys, and so he attempts to now anoint this one, the next oldest, and this one, the next oldest, and this one, the next. And the oil continually does not flow. And so Samuel looks at Jesse, and he says, do you have another son? And David said, that was me. I was left out. I was not even invited into the lineup. But into that room to which I was not invited, God has Samuel call me in. And in the company of everyone, God says to Samuel, arise and anoint him because he is the one this time to everyone's shock the oil flowed lesson number one as you run what God has for you no one can take from you don't ever worry about who gets there first it doesn't matter don't ever worry about who looks more qualified don't ever worry about uh, you know if somebody doesn't like you or if they do like you if you were invited or not invited as if it is man who is the one pulling the strings on the opportunities that God has for you what I've learned in my life is it doesn't matter what anybody thinks says believes invites me to doesn't invite me to guess what what God has for me nobody can take from me God will hold up the oil in your life until you uh, get there on the scene. David continues, and he said, but then I went through a period of time when I was anointed, but not yet appointed, where God chose me to be king, but my father sent me back to tend the sheep. Lesson number two, be okay with seasons of preparation so you are ready for your purpose. 
Don't rush them. Be faithful in them. Embrace them and realize that whatever you do, you do it as unto the Lord. He is the one who sets up and brings down. He is the one who knows when you're ready and when you're not. Don't rush your moment. Trust in the timing of God. And so David would say, so I went back to tending sheep until the day that my father asked me, and you've heard me say this before, take some pizza to my brothers on the battlefield. It was bread and cheese. To me, that's pizza. I'm Italian. That's the way I look at things. And he said, and I went out there. And when I went out there, I noticed that on the battlefield that nobody wanted to face this uncircumcised Philistine named Goliath. Nobody wanted to fight him and stand up for God. So I said, I will. And when I did, everybody laughed at me. They didn't think that I could win. My brother Eliab laughed at me. Saul, my king, laughed at me. And the uncircumcised Philistine laughed at me. Lesson number three. In your race, God will ask you to do some things that are laughable because that's what faith is. Don't get discouraged by the laughters because when you do what God has asked, you to do, even though it may seem impossible and improbable, you and God get the last laugh all the time. But then they really laughed at me, David would say. I refused any armor to go to the fight. And, and I went to the fight against this uncircumcised Philistine with only a slingshot that I had been practicing with and my whole life and five smooth stones. And I ran onto the battlefield. Lesson number four, by the way, you're writing all these lessons down, right? Lesson number four. God will take what you've perfected in private and cause you to rise to your palace. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Don't look at the size of the stage or the smallness of the opportunity. Perfect the gift that God has given you and it will make room for you. Listen to me. I remember the days when I was preaching to ten kids in a basement. That was youth group back in the day. We didn't have special rooms. We didn't have special lights. We had 10 kids in a basement. And that's why I was, and do you know what? I studied just as hard for those 10 kids in that basement as I do right now today. Why? Because what was I doing? I was perfecting my gift when nobody could see, when no eyes were on me. Because what we do to perfect our gift when no one can see determines the places that God takes us to. There are times where God is sowing, God is building. Do not ever uh, despise those days of small beginnings. And so David, he took the slingshot that he had been working with his whole life and that's what God used to take him to the palace and then he would say when I got there I took five stones from the brook lesson number five five stones lesson number five you always have everything and more than you need to defeat anything that stands in the way of the destiny that God has for you. Because even though he took five, he only used one. He only needed one, but God gave him five. Why? Don't look at what you don't have. You may not have the education. You may not have the wealth. You may not have the talent. You may not have the ability. But if you don't have it, you don't need it. God gave you what you need in order to fulfill your destiny. Don't look at what other people have. It doesn't matter what they have. You're not 
running their race, you're running your race. If you try to be somebody else, you will overlook the gifts and the talents that God has placed on the inside of you. Be grateful for what you do have. Be thankful for what you do have. Give God the glory for the great things that he's done in your life and given to you. Don't worry about anybody else. Keep your eyes on you. Do not look and try to work out somebody else's salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God would say number six. David would say, and then God would say. And then when I got to the battlefield, he said, after I knocked the giant down with the one stone out of the five that God had provided for me, he said, God told me to take the giant's sword and cut his head off with his own sword. Lesson number six, God will take what the enemy sent to stop you to send you. See, did you notice that it was that very thing, that enemy, that giant, meant to stop David? That was the very thing that caused David to go to the palace that God had from him. Don't sweat the stuff the enemy sends your way. It's part of the testimony. It's part of the miracle. It's part of helping you to see how strong the God that you serve is. And it was this event, the conquering of the problem that God used to take David to the palace. Lesson number seven. Your problems are your path to the palace. Your problems are your path to the palace. The enemy sends these things to get you off track. God sends these things as disguised opportunities. When you solve a problem, you get promoted. When you solve a problem, you go deeper in your relationship with God. It was this problem. The devil sent the problem to stop David. God used the problem to send David. And David was saying, I was overlooked. I was undervalued. I was a despised shepherd boy living in obscurity. And God put me on the throne of the greatest nation of the earth with a problem. I asked God why, David would say. And here's what I believe David would say. God answered, because I had a heart that was after God's heart. Because while I was in the field and nobody knew what I was doing, I was praying. When nobody was seeing my relationship with God, my relationship with God was growing roots. I prayed so much in private that God eventually trusted me in public. I loved God so much that that's why I wanted to fight Goliath. I didn't want to fight Goliath for any other reason but because he was defying the armies of the living God. And I wanted everybody to know that the God of Israel was the one true God that he saves not by the sword, not by the spear, but by his supernatural hand. And when I got to the palace... I was wondering, how in the world me, how did I get here? I was having a moment, everybody was singing about me. David has killed his, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. They were singing, they were, they were thinking that I got here because I was a mighty warrior, but the bear in the field should have killed me, the lion should have killed me, the giant should have killed me, Saul should have killed me, war should have killed me, but God preserved me and God spared me and God put me in the palace and everybody sang about my strength, but I knew that it was my strength that came from the Lord. I knew that God held up that oil until I got there. I knew that God took that stone and put his hand on it and that little rock rock became a rocket and knocked that giant over. They thought it was me but I knew it was God. And when I got there my first act as king was to find somebody that I could share his goodness with. Lesson number eight. Pass it on. 
The first thing David did when he got to the palace was he looked for Mephibosheth, somebody from Jonathan's house, so that he could be good to. And Mephibosheth, he was crippled. He couldn't do nothing for David. He couldn't give him anything back. He couldn't open up a door or give him an opportunity. But David wasn't looking for somebody to do something for him. David was looking to pass on the goodness that God had shown him to somebody else. And so he called him to the palace. He made him sit at his table. He gave him food and servants and land and houses. And he got nothing in return. Can I tell you, if you want to run your race well, you've got to look to pass it on. Pass on the goodness of God. Not just to people who can do something for you, but to to people who can't give you anything in return. David would say, pass it on. But then David would say, listen up and listen up carefully because here's where it gets real. He said, everything that I said is not as important as what I'm about to tell you. He said, then something happened. He said, I walked out on the palace porch at a time when kings should be out to battle. And because I wasn't where I was supposed to be, because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I wound up doing the wrong thing. And this race that I had been running so well, all of a sudden came to a screeching halt and almost stopped. David would say, you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about Bathsheba. David would say, lesson number nine, be in the right place at the right time. If you're supposed to be home with your spouse, be home with your spouse. If you're supposed to be in school, be in school. You're supposed to be in class, be in class. You're supposed to be in church, be in church. Why? It's a very simple principle. When you are in the right place at the right time, you do the right thing. But you, when you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, you do the wrong thing. And what happens is stuff begins to snowball. David would say, you know the story. I slept with my best friend's wife, Bathsheba. I got her pregnant and I experienced the heavy weight of sin. And it not just slowed me down in my race. It almost brought it to a screeching halt. David would say, my last lesson for you, it's my most important one, is drop the weight of sin in your life. Drop it. Get rid of it. Don't hold on to it. Don't play with it. Why? Because number one, sin stops us from enjoying the abundant life that God has for us. David would say, at first I thought it was all fun and games. I walked out on the palace porch. I saw Bathsheba bathing. And instead of looking away, I focused and started fantasizing. And I decided I'm the king. I'm the man. I'll call her to the palace. I'll sleep with her, send her on her way, and nobody will know any different. What's the big deal? People in power do that all the time. Politicians do that all the time. People who are heads of country, anybody who's got power, they do this kind of stuff. That's just the way it is. I'm a king. Kings have multiple wives and multiple women. What's the big deal? I thought it was fun and games. But then she called me. Then she sent word to me. She said, I'm pregnant. And I did what any human tries to do when they are caught. You know what I noticed as a pastor? Very few people, when they get caught, immediately break down and confess. Usually doesn't happen. Because we're human. And so what did David do? He did what human beings do. 
He had a plan. And the plan was, I'm going to cover this baby up. Plan A was a simple plan. I'll call Uriah, my buddy, my boy, my best friend, my, somebody who was in my wedding party. I'll call him back from war. I'll tell him it's a favor. I'll tell him it's a reprieve. I'll tell him because we're boys, I'm going to give him a little rest. And I'm just going to let him spend the night with his wife. And, you know, they can have a good time. And then she could then say she got pregnant that night, that night. And nobody will know anything. And it'll be all good. But the one thing I didn't count on was the honor that Uriah had. Because Uriah wanted to have a good time with his wife. Well, his friends were out on the battlefield risking their lives. So I tried to cover it again. See, this time I, I called them in. And I said, before you go home, let's have a few drinks together. You know, because ain't nothing wrong with just a few drinks. Everybody has just a few drinks. We'll just have a few drinks together. He'll lose his inhibitions. He'll lose his sense of honor. He'll lose his sense of right and wrong. And then I'll tell him, go home and be with your wife. And this time, he won't have the willpower to do the right thing because his willpower has been dulled by introducing things that block his ability to think and reason. But even a drunk Uriah still had more honor than me. He slept outside his house. So what did I do? When it wasn't working, when the cover, I continued to try to cover it. This time my plan, plan C. I had plan A, I had plan B, I had plan C. Plan C was, I put him out on the front lines. Not in the back of the war, in the front of the war. Head of the pack. So that way, he'll get killed in battle. And then he'll never know what I did. And here's what David would say. He would say, and it worked. But even though it worked, there was a high cost of doing such a low thing. I was a king living in the palace, but I was a prisoner. I was a king that had servants, but I was now a slave to sin. You see, sin, listen to me, it overpromises and underdelivers. It never does what it says it's going to do. It never makes you happy for the long run. It never keeps the high. It never dulls the senses forever. It never gives you what it promises you. And because God loves us so much, it never really stays in the dark. Sure, God may not embarrass us with it, but it always shows up in our lives. Listen to what the scripture says, Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. Sin is a weight because it makes us a slave to sin. It begins to run our life and in so doing, it steals the life that God has designed for us, the abundant life that God has given to us. It almost stole it from David. It stole it from Adam and Eve. They were designed to live in paradise. They sinned. They got banned from the garden. Sin. Robbed them of the, it did it for Samson. Samson was designed to be a deliverer. He got so involved in sin that he wound up with both his eyes gouged out, being a slave chained in the middle of the people that he was supposed to rule over. Why? Because of sin. And let's not forget about the prodigal who was living in the comforts of the father's house, having the best of everything, the best food, the best care, the best house, the best clothes, the best everything. But he wanted to do it his way. And when he did it his way and when he sinned, what happened? He lost the life God had. 
David would tell us, we need to drop the weight of sin because it stops us from enjoying the abundant life that God has for us. But then number two, David would say, drop the weight of sin because sin sickens the heart. After David came to his senses, he wrote a song of repentance to God. I call it David's country song. Why? Because you ever hear, listen to country songs? Country songs are always songs about like, you know, about how life evolved. And I was hanging out in the back of the pickup truck and I had my bottles of beer over there with me and we had on the music and we were kicking it with our cowboy boots and then my girl came over and we spent the night. That's, that's like a country song, right? Listen to this country song. I found this one online. It's called, I Feel a Sin Coming On. Maybe you can relate. I feel a sin coming on. I feel a right that's about to go wrong. I got a shiver down in my bone. I feel a sin coming on. I got a buzz in my brain, drunk on love, going down like champagne. I got a feeling it's going to leave a lipstick stain, and I'm the only one to blame. And you can see it all over my face, sweet temptation all over the place. Give me tall, dark, and handsome. Mix it up with something strong. I feel a sin coming on. It's amazing how everybody in this room can know that's exactly the way it goes. It's not like you fall into it. It's not like I fall into it. It's not like, oh, I can't believe what I did. It's no, you feel that sin coming on. And we choose that over Christ in those moments. David wrote his own country song, Psalm 51. It explains what happened in his heart after he sinned with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted. David is broken. Notice the first thing he prays. Created me a clean heart. Why? Because sin sickens the heart. It does something on the inside of us. Pastor, I don't know what's happened. I lost my fire for God. I don't know what's happened. I don't feel his presence like I used to. I don't know what's happened. Prayer is not doing it for me anymore. I don't know what's happened. I don't have a desire to be in God's house like I used to. Something's not right. I remember the old song that describes how it used to be, how I walked with him and talked with him, and he told me he was his own, and the joy we shared as we tarried there, none have ever known. I remember what it was like that, Pastor, but I don't have that anymore. What's happened to me? Could it be that your heart is sick because of the weight of sin? Oh, you may still be saved. You may still be on your way to heaven. But are you carrying some weight that you need to drop? Could it be that there is something in your life that you know is not right, that God has been dealing with you about to lay aside, but you haven't? I know that has been the case with me on more than one occasion, on more occasions than I care to admit, where we know something doesn't quite feel right, we're not growing closer to God and following Christ like we want to, and we can't put our finger on it, we find it hard to serve Him passionately and consistently, we feel like we are running against a wind, one spiritual step forward, two spiritual steps back, our heart has become so sick, we don't even realize that that's the problem. Because we have gotten so acclimated to the weight of sin that God is asking us to lay aside. We're like the proverbial frog in the boiling water. You've heard that before, right? 
If you take a frog and you put it in water that's already boiling, it'll jump right out. If you take the frog and you put it in room temperature water and you start to turn it up slowly, 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 it'll stay in that water and it'll be scalded to death. Has sin so become acclimated in our life that we are being scalded in our soul and we don't even know it? Have we lowered the bar so much in what we think is right and wrong and what we tolerate in our lives as believers that our soul is becoming so sick and we don't know it? David says, created me a clean heart. His heart lost the blessing of a pure conscience. He said, and renew a right or loyal spirit in me. His heart lost the blessing of being at peace on the inside. He says, do not banish me from your presence. His heart lost the assurance of God's presence, the presence that comforts us in crisis, the presence that fills you with wisdom and not worry, the presence that gives you hope in the face of despair, the presence that gives you assurance that his favor is with you, that fills your heart with his power, the presence that assures you that you're not alone. We need the presence of God. Moses said to God, God, don't send me to Pharaoh unless your presence goes with me. We don't understand how much we need God's presence. We can't succeed without it. David also prayed, listen to his prayer, listen to his heart being sick. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. His heart lost its joy, not an ordinary joy, but a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Ben Franklin said this, listen to me, this is a great quote. He said, sin is not hurtful because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it's hurtful. Sin is not hurtful because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it's hurtful. It sickens our heart. It stops us from enjoying and experiencing the abundant life that God wants us to have. And so God tells us to drop it, get rid of it, stop doing it, lay it aside. Not so that he can rain on our parade, but so that he can release the fullness of what he has for us in his life. Man has not seen what God can yet do through a person whose heart is fully surrendered to him. By God's grace, I want to be that man. And number three, David would say, drop the way to sin because sin distorts our view of ourselves in God. Makes us believe the lie that we are self-made. You know what happened to David after he spent a little time in the palace? He started believing the songs. He started believing, yeah, that's right. I know why I'm here. I'm the toughest warrior. I'm the strongest warrior. Ain't nobody else can beat up a giant like I beat up a giant. I took that giant down with a rock and a slingshot. Nobody else could do it with all the weapons in the world. That's me. That's right. I'm here. I can have what I want to without any boundaries because God didn't put me here. I put me here. And see, when we start thinking it's us, when we start believing our press, and when we forget that it was God, when we forget that it was God that preserved us, God that sustained us, God that sent us, God that enabled us, God that provided for us, God, when we forget that it was God, we start living a life without boundaries because we think we got there on our own, but it was God that did it. And so self becomes our God. And God becomes a way to serve self. 
That's a Selah moment right there. Self becomes God. God becomes a way to serve self. And so a whole relationship with God revolves around, how can God do all these things for me? And here's the funny thing about it is, you never have to worry about how God can do all these things for you. Because God promised, if you seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. And the reason why God wants him to be first in order for that to happen is because the other stuff means nothing to you then. It doesn't slow you down in your race because you'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. You'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. You'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. You'd rather be true to his holy name. Sin distorts our view of God and self. It's at times like this where I remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Everything, every gift, every talent, every position, every opportunity, every door, every bit of breath, every bit of health, every bit of finances, every bit of it, it's by the grace of God. Every gift is by His grace. Every breath we take by His grace. Every door opened by His grace. Every finance is given to us by His grace. It's Him that gives us the power to get wealth. It's Him that gives us the power to succeed. It's Him that gives us the talent that we need. It's Him. It's by His grace. But sin... It distorts our view of self and God. It makes us believe the lie that God doesn't love us. And this is why the opening text says that if you're going to drop the weight of sin, it says you need to look on to Jesus. Because when you look on to Jesus, you realize something about sin and God's love. You realize that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What am I saying? I'm saying to you that God loves you God loves you the same in this moment as he'll love you in any moment. There's no moment where God's love moves. God's love doesn't go down when we sin and up when we don't. God loves us just the same at all times. It is an inseparable love. God's love for us is constant. God's love for us does not ebb and and flow. He doesn't love us just because we're good and not love us because we're bad. The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is no sin that is too gross for his grace. There, there There is no sin that is too ugly that he can't cover. God loves us the same. It's an everlasting love. Jeremiah says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. If you are a parent, you know this. If you are the right kind of parent, there is no sin that your child can ever commit that changes your love for them. You're disappointed. You wish they wouldn't have. And if you're a good parent, at the right times, you express why it's wrong. I don't know where in the world we've got this understanding that good parenting means just let them make their own choices and never give them any guidance. I understand that as they get older, you have less of an impact on what they're able to say. But I'm a dad from the day my kids were born until the day I leave this earth. And you know what? As long as I'm a dad in my kids' life, there will always be a source of truth into their lives. Whether they like what I say or don't like what I say. Because my goal is not to get them to love me. My goal is to love them unconditionally all the time and make sure that they fulfill the destiny and the plan that God has for them. 
And what's interesting about the love of God is it does the opposite of what we think. In Jeremiah 31, when he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, he said, therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. See, what happens when we sin is we think that God's going to forget about us. We think that God's going to leave us, that God's going to abandon us. But the opposite is actually true. When we sin, God's love kicks into high gear and God runs to us. Remember the prodigal, what did he do, the father? The father ran to the son. He wrapped his arms around the son. Why? To get in the way of the rocks because that son was going to get killed by the community for doing what he did. Because people always like to kill others for their sin, but everybody wants mercy for their own. And that father got in the way of those rocks. Same thing Jesus did for us on the cross. Got in the way of the stone of death. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And what happened? God didn't abandon them. God came down and he walked in the cool of the day and he called out to them. He said, where are you? Where are you? Have you sinned? He covered them with animal skins and he kicked them out of the garden. See, most people think that that was just punishment. It wasn't punishment. It was protection because if they ate of the tree of life in the middle of their sin, they would have stayed in their sin forever. And so God kicked them out of the garden and put a flaming sword in front of the garden so they wouldn't be stuck in their sin forever. And then what did God do? Same thing he did for us. He went on a search and and rescue mission where he sent his only begotten son to this earth to rescue us. God doesn't abandon us when we sin. God draws us with his great love when we sin. But sin makes us believe the lie that God doesn't love us anymore. What did God do for David? He sent Nathan. He sent Nathan to David the prophet. And you remember the story. Nathan told him a little parable. He said there was this one guy who was poor. had one little lamb he loved a lot. This other guy was rich. He had everything and a ton of lambs. And the rich guy stole the poor guy's lamb. And then he had the poor guy killed. What do you think should be done to the rich man? And David says, you should kill him. He should die. See what happens to, with sin? What sin does is it makes us max punishment people. You know who I can always tell the people who are living for God and the people who aren't? When people want to crucify other people for their sin, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I'm not saying there aren't consequences for sin. But we should be max mercy people, not max judgment people. And David's heart was not right, and so he said, you ought to kill him. You ought to kill him. Because that's what sin does to our heart. God sent Nathan into David's life, sent him there not to punish David, but to free David. Sent him there because God loved David so much that he didn't want him to stay in his sin and stop the destiny that he had for him. And so God sent him Nathan so he could see, because here's what happens when we get stuck in sin, we cannot see that it's sin. We don't see that there's anything wrong with it. We excuse it. We live in it. We, 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 well, God loves me anyway. Well, his grace will cover that anyway. And we get steeped in our sin. And so what God does is he sends Nathans into our life. Who's your Nathan? Guess what? Today I'm your Nathan. Not condemning you. Because I've been on the other side of this message. How do you think this message came into being? Because God spoke it directly to my heart. He said, stop hindering me. Drop the weight. I want to do more. 
And here's what Nathan's do. Nathan's give life-giving rebukes. Life-giving. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Life-giving, not condemning. Anybody that comes into your life with a condemning word for you, toss that prophet to the curb. They haven't been set from the heart of God because God's will is not to condemn us. God's will is to set us free so that the destiny that God has for us can be accomplished. And I'm running out of time, so I've got to end with this. The the, the next lie that helps us to believe or makes us believe sin is that God can't use us anymore. I've sinned and God can't use me. I've done wrong. I've I've lost everything that I I want in life. God can't, can't use me. It's a lie. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. One of the beauties of what God did in the story, here's how it kind of resolves itself. Nathan says to David, David, you the man. You the one I'm talking about. David repents. He writes his country song about how he needs a clean heart. And his heart is broken now. And it's broken because he sinned against God and it's broken because of the pain and consequences of his sin. He loses the child with Bathsheba. Can I speak to those of you whose heart is broken right now because of sin? That's not the end. David, here's another word from Nathan. He says, but you're going to live. And then God does something for David that is absolutely mind-blowing and Matthew talks about it. We're going to close with this. Matthew 1, 6. And Jesus and Jesse, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Verse 17. And there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Out of David and Bathsheba came Jesus. Are you kidding me? If I was God, I wouldn't have done that. But see, God said, here's the reason why I sent Nathan. Here's the reason why I'm calling you to drop the weight of sin. Here's the reason why I'm calling you to live an unhindered life is because I want to release the destiny that I have for you. And even if you're steeped in it, even if you're in it, even if you got weight that you shouldn't have on your life, if you will just repent, if you will run to the mercy seat of Almighty God that God will forgive you God will wash you God will cleanse you God will restore you God will use you God will release His destiny into your life just look at Jesus looking on to Jesus everything that Jesus did He did with imperfect people He took a man who was a murderer and He made him write two thirds of the New Testament He took a prophet who murdered an Egyptian and used him to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt He took a woman who was living with five different men that keep moving on living with another man married five times and he made her the greatest preacher to our city the world has ever known he took a prostitute with an alabaster box and made her the one who preached the resurrection for the first time what is God saying you want your destiny you've got to drop the weight of sin and here's why We didn't have prayer at the beginning of service because we're going to have prayer right now. We're going to sing a song right now and I want you to hear the heart of God. The song is called Mercy Seat.
And as we sing this song, if you need to drop some weight, I want you to step out of your seat. Come right to this altar. God is going to wash you. God is going to forgive you. God is going to restore you. And God is going to release you. What you say? thank you for the ability to come to your mercy seat by the blood of Jesus Father we come here today to receive forgiveness to repent to lay the weight that has been hindering our lives at your feet Father today I proclaim a mighty deliverance over each and every person who had the courage to want you more than they wanted anything else in life Father, I pray that our hearts would burn with a new fire. 
that our hearts would be ignited in such a way now that nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is more important than you. That you become our passion. That you become our priority. That you become the one in whom we live and move and have our being. That we would not bow down to any other thing in our life, but that you would be king of our heart. Father, the wrestling that is going on on the inside of us would finally come to a stop today. And that you would be crowned the champion of our heart in every way. Rule and reign in us. Father, make yourself even bigger on the inside of us. Father, thank you for unprecedented anointing. Thank you for unprecedented opportunity. Thank you for glory that we've never seen before. Thank you for light shining bright through us like we've never had before. Thank you for power that we've never experienced before. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, release right now over every one of these people a great anointing to break every yoke and destroy every bondage in their life. Today we come to you. You are the strong tower. You are the refuge, the place that we run to in time of need. We come boldly to the throne of grace. We come boldly to the throne of mercy. We find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, we cast out any voice of condemnation, any voice of shame, any voice that would hinder us, Lord. We throw off every weight that has been standing in the way. And right now, we vow to run like we never have before, to run not only fast, but to run free, to no longer be slaves to sin, Lord, but whom you set free are free indeed. Today we lay aside everything, every lust, every envy, every jealousy, every greed, every anger, every bitterness, every shortcoming, everything that we've been holding on to and harboring, anything that is not of you today, we call it condemned in the mighty name of Jesus. We speak the power of the word against it. We speak the name of Jesus. We just declare right now every high thing must come down. Everything that has set on the throne of our hearts must be broken and brought to naught. Father, we proclaim liberty in this place like never before. Let this be the year of unhindered life in you. Let this be the year where we run such a race, Lord, that we will finally see what you can do through a man or a woman that is fully surrendered to you. Father, let there be no weights, no barriers, no hindrances. Father, let us run, run, run. Let us run and not be weary. Let us walk and not faint. Let us experience power like we never have. In the mighty name of Jesus, we declare and we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to encourage you all to walk free. I want to thank you all for your courage. The greatest thing that you can ever do, we live in a world that has taught us that correction is rejection. Correction is freedom. It's not rejection. And you're going to experience the greatest freedom that you ever had in all your years of serving God because today you came to the altar. God bless each and every one of them. God bless you all. Hallelujah. Amen.